0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to top people and ideas. Powered by Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. Good morning, you're listening to The Breakfast Grill. I'm Shazana Mukhtar. The present war in Gaza, triggered by the October 7th attacks by Hamas and Israel, is only the latest in a long history of violence in the occupied Palestinian territories. What lessons does the past shed about the path forward towards resolving the longstanding crisis in the Middle East? With me today to discuss this is Dr. Ian Lustick, the Best W. Heyman Chair in the Political Science Department at the University of Pennsylvania. He's the author of Paradigm Lost from Two-State Solution to One-State Reality that was published in 2019. Professor Lustig, good morning. Thank you for joining me.
1: Uh, Good morning. It's wonderful to be with you.
0: Now, from your vantage point as a historian and a political scientist well-versed in the bloody history of Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I'm wondering if you notice any differences in what's happening in the present-day siege of Gaza from previous bombardments uh, by Israel. I mean, there have been countless other periods in the past 75 years where attacks and counterattacks have taken place between the two sides, but then they've always returned to a sort of stalemate position until the next round. Is there anything different about this time that you think could change expectations for what happens after the war in the short term?
1: Yes, there is something different, and on the other hand, that's precisely what makes it similar. I've been observing this conflict and these relations between Israel and Palestinians for well over half a century, very closely. And one of the things I can tell you is that not only me, but other observers have encountered massacres and uh, horrific losses on each side and the consequences. And each time it seems like something has happened which will make this conflict completely different. And will force a resolution. Whether that was the Six Day War itself, the shock to the Arab world of losing the West Bank of East Jerusalem and Gaza, whether it was the Yom Kippur War, the 1973 war that inflicted uh, terrible casualties on Israel and which shocked the country deeply, whether it was the election of um, Menachem Begin, a very right wing. Zionist uh, political uh, leader, or the attack on Lebanon that destroyed uh, Beirut and, and killed so many refugees, whether it was the massacre of Sabra and Shatila that would seem to turn the entire world upside down, whether it was the intifada that finally burst the bubble that Israelis could not accept the status quo anymore, or the second intifada where the bloodshed on both sides and the, was uh, overwhelming every one of these and more seemed like an event that would produce a future totally different. And yet, what we've seen are the recapitulation of very regular and familiar patterns. And in this case, I see the same kind of combination. On the one hand, we've never seen the kind of destruction of Israeli life and Israeli sense of security by a penetration of Palestinians into what Israelis see as the heart of their country. Uh, And and we've certainly never seen the scale of destruction of continuing incessant pulverization of Palestinian communities, as we've seen in uh, Gaza, a kind of defiance by Israel, by the Israeli government of the entire world in this regard. We've never seen that either. On the other hand, as I just pointed out, just because we've never seen this level of horror before doesn't mean that a new chapter is being opened.
0: Now, you've said that history shows the Israel onslaught ends when the U.S. gives it the red light. And this week, the U.S. has signaled that it's drafting a text in the U.N. Security Council calling for a temporary ceasefire, even as it's vetoed other uh, previous resolutions uh, calling for humanitarian ceasefire. Is this akin to the red light um, that you're talking about? And do you anticipate anything concrete coming out of this initiative?
1: Uh, first, let, let's uh, clarify what I mean by the red light idea. If you look at all the wars that Israel has been involved in from '48 on, uh, Israel's existence in the Middle East created deep, deep political problems, which Zionism knew it would create. There is no military solution to those political problems, to how a Jewish political entity can be absorbed and accommodated in a Arab Muslim. Uh, Middle East. Those are political problems, so the Israeli military can never accomplish them. Every war, the military, it's told in Israel, this time you'll be able to get a victory. We will let you win. But in fact, they can't get a victory because the, the victory that's important is political. That means the government can only stop fighting without admitting it has been defeated by being forced to stop fighting by the outside world. In the first decade, that was Britain that told Israel where to stop in 1948, or it was the United States and the Soviet Union in 1956. But after that, it's been the United States turning on the red light. And what's different about this conflict is it's taken it's taking so long for the United States to turn on the red light. In the Six-Day War, it took about a week. In the Yom Kippur War, the 1973 war, it took a few weeks before it, the United States sent a very clear message to Israel and not, sometimes through a un resolution sometimes through just you must stop now no more aid uh, if you don't or not even having to say that but this time it's going on months 140 days without the united states telling israel to stop though they have been turning on the yellow light for quite some time one of the big reasons for the delay is that what forced the united states presidents to turn on the red light was a fear of confrontation of a crisis with uh, the Soviet Union. During the Cold War, there was always that fear that an uncontrolled conflict in the Middle East could implicate the United States and the Soviet Union into a kind of Cuban missile crisis, and it did in 1973 to an extent. Now we don't have that kind of a a face-off between the United States and China or or, uh, Russia over the Middle East. So an American president is more constrained by his domestic political concerns than international fears of a war. Uh, that's the reason why this is stretched out so long, in addition to President Biden's own uh, decisions and his own background on this issue. Now you ask, we, we turn to the question you ask about the American resolution. I think this is not a red light. This is kind of an orange light because we don't even know whether the United States means for this resolution to come to a vote. It doesn't talk about a permanent ceasefire, only a temporary ceasefire. But it does address certain sensitive issues for Israel, including stopping the Rafah operation and uh, that's being threatened and forbidding Israel from uh, creating a buffer zone within Gaza, that is essentially shrinking the size of the Gaza Strip. Uh, so there is concern in Israel. It's getting attention. But until the United States makes it clear that this is it, that uh, that Israel, uh, uh, that the United States will bring this to the Security Council and will vote for it, it's not going to change Israeli behavior.
0: Hmm. What would push the U.S. to deviate from its current position and intervene to reign in Israel that it's still a yellow light? What would it take for it to do the red light?
1: the uh, the answer to that question is fundamentally a judgment by the uh, by president biden that he will lose more politically in the progressive wing of the democratic party and those outside the party who are just horrified by what's going on in the middle east he will lose more by feeling seeming feckless or a tool of the israel lobby than he will lose by alienating the Israel lobby in the United States if he puts pressure as he puts pressure on the Netanyahu government.
0: So right now it's more of a domestic political consideration rather than the implications for the broader Middle East, because we are seeing strikes uh, by Israel on uh, Lebanon, for example. I guess the threat of that larger conflagration in the region isn't exactly what's pushing the U.S. to uh, put on the red light.
1: That's a very important consideration. I believe that the President Biden went to Israel, Early in the war, not so much to show political support for Israel, though that was important to him, but to restrain Israel from attacking Lebanon, which Israeli leaders wanted to do right away, because that threat from Hezbollah in Lebanon has always been, in Israeli eyes, a more important threat than the threat from Hamas. The United States does not want that to happen. It would cause, uh, because of the risks. that would implicate American foreign policy. It would implicate Iran, American relations with Iran. The Russians have forces in Syria. There's great dangers associated with that. To say nothing of a scale of destruction in Lebanon and in Israel, that's, I call, a kind of super catastrophe compared to the catastrophe we're seeing now. What we don't know, and we'll only know in the future, is whether there's some kind of trade-off going on in which Israel is restraining itself in Lebanon under American pressure, but part of that arrangement is that the United States allows Israel to continue to operate against Hamas in Gaza. So what the United States has to do is find a way to say, no, that's not a deal we're willing to uh, engage in. We want restraint in both areas. We want a new arrangement in Lebanon and a new arrangement in Gaza. If we talk about domestic political, I believe that that still is the key to when Biden will act, but it's also the key to what's going on in Israel. The Israeli leadership does not have a vision of what it wants in Gaza. It it, it hasn't had a vision of what it ever had a vision of what it wants in Gaza, and it doesn't now. But Netanyahu has a vision of what he does not want, which is an end to the war. And Netanyahu personally, very personally, has a political stake in the continuation of the war, at least until the possibility of a a return to power by Donald Trump, which Netanyahu believes could save him. That means if he's not, certainly if he's not Forced to by the United States, Netanyahu will do whatever he can to continue the war through the November election in one form or another. So it's, it's not just in the United States that domestic politics trumps foreign policy, it is also in Israel.
0: I'm speaking to Dr. Ayan Lustick, the Best W. Heyman Chair at the University of Pennsylvania and author of the book Paradigm Lost from Two State Solution to One State Reality. We'll have more from this conversation after the break. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. Thanks for staying tuned to The Breakfast Grill. I'm Shazana Mukhtar, and with me today is Dr. Ian Lustick, the Best W. Heyman Chair in the Political Science Department of the University of Pennsylvania. We are discussing the historical underpinnings of the Israeli-Palestinian crisis and the way forward the international community, including Malaysia, we cling to the potential of a two-state solution to resolve the conflict, and we see it as the best possible solution. It's what's being said in all the statements, whether at the UN or uh, just by governments. Uh, But this is something that you've actually eschewed. You don't see a viable pathway for two states to coexist. You wrote about this back in 2013, and that's what your book is about. Why is the two-state solution not a possibility anymore, in your view? Well,
1: first let me say that I... Back in the early seventies and late sixties, I, when I was very young, I started writing in favor of a two-state solution. I was one of the early uh, exponents, uh, proponents of it in the United States, and I fought for it, wrote about it, encouraged people to think about it, right up th- through after the Second Intifada. But after the two thousand and six, two thousand and seven, two thousand and nine, I started to realize. That there were so many settlements in the West Bank and Gaza, which I've been watching for years and worrying about, and the Israel itself had changed so deeply into a, what in the United States we call a deeply red country, uh, that there was only the pretty picture of a two states that existed. Uh, that's not a solution. That's a pretty picture. A solution is when you think you know how to get somewhere through plausible political means. And I, could, I used to be able to imagine elections in Israel that would give rise to a government like the Rabin government that maybe if it didn't love a two-state solution would accept it if the Palestinians also produced such a government, if the United States president was willing to take certain risks, the stars were aligned, maybe there was a 20 30% chance that it could happen. But there is no such chance anymore that Israel could produce that kind of government. There is, and the Palestinian uh, society has also changed. The there are now seven hundred and fifty thousand Israelis living across the Green Line uh, in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. That's eleven percent of the Jewish population. No one that I know, no one that I have heard or read in the last ten years has been able to describe a political process realistically, that they think could lead to this outcome. That mean, But there are many people who still advocate it. Why? Because they don't want to face the problem of 7 million Palestinians living as equal citizens in a larger Israeli state. What we have is a large Israeli state that includes the West Bank and Gaza, with half the population Jewish and half the population Arab, but no political rights to most of the Palestinians. That is how many Israelis would rather have the situation and then recognizing it for what it is, which is a non-democratic state. The way you can avoid recognizing what's actually there, which is a non-democratic state, a kind of silent apartheid state, the way you can avoid it is to say, we're just waiting for the two-state solution. We're still hoping for it. But privately knowing that you could never get it and, ha- and having no ideas for how to get it, but being unwilling to face what I call the one-state reality and the difficult long-term struggles that that makes inevitable over how, when, and whether Israel will actually democratize. How do you, over a long period of time, integrate previously excluded populations into your political community? That takes generations. That's a process of democratization that takes a very long time because the groups in power don't want to allow those out of power to share it. But it does happen. It can happen. It happened in the United States. The United States became a multiracial democracy more than 100 years after uh, Black slaves were freed. That is how women got the vote in most industrialized countries, not quickly, but over long periods of time, they had been excluded and considered irrelevant to politics. So a one state reality by by that I mean it's not a pretty picture, but it shows that there can be because there is one state between the river and the sea. The question is can it become democratic and how? and we can learn from that more by looking at how democracy arrived in previously divided countries, previously authoritarian countries than we can from how. France withdrew from Algeria, which is what I used to study in order to understand Israel's future.
0: You talk about um, how Israel can't accept this one state reality, but what about the Palestinian side? I mean, doesn't you can't discount the fact that perhaps the pushback towards one state will come from them. Uh, why should why would or why should they give up the goal of returning and retrieving all of their homeland?
1: That, that's an argument against why should they accept a two-state solution, which means they'll never return to Haifa or Jaffa or Tiberias. Many Palestinians, in fact, probably now more than, uh, than otherwise, see since the two-state solution is a, a phantom, is a mirage, let's go for what we really want and should have, which is access to the whole country. Well, access to the whole country is the one-state reality. So Jerusalem, instead of dividing it and having little neighborhoods be part of the Palestinian state and some neighborhoods the Jewish state, let all Palestinians and all Jews in the whole country have access to the whole city. Well, that's an image that is now more satisfying to Palestinians both inside and outside Palestine than it used to be ever before because the two-state solution seems too costly and too, too implausible. If not impossible to achieve, even in Gaza, I believe if you had a a a, a a a poll that people could take without worrying about the consequences of the reactions, you would find that Palestinians would have would favor Israeli annexation of the Strip, just as they would ex, uh, ex, uh, favor Israeli annexation of the West Bank to the continuing situation, the continuing. Uh, uh, status quo. Because under the status quo, you can't claim uh, very easily, well, you've annexed us, therefore give us equal citizenship. We're part of the country. Instead, there's this limbo that the West Bank, Palestinians, and the Gaza Strip are put into in which the kind of prisons or reservations that are and are not inside of Israeli control, where Israeli power and military force can be used against people there, but the international community is not said to have rights to protect the sovereignty of those areas. So, uh, so I believe that Palestinians are moving just uh, toward the idea. Okay, let's make this country something different than it is, but it is one country.
0: Mm. I'm wondering who speaks for the Palestinians at the moment, because the Palestinian Authority has grown significantly weaker. Hamas isn't seen as an acceptable negotiating partner to Israel or to other international allies. I mean, is there a party or figure that Palestinians can unite behind and can actually be that uh, representative to get them the rights that they've been striving for?
1: You know, in situations like this, whether it's Ireland or India or South Africa or Israel, the answer to that question usually lies in prisons. And it's true now the only leadership that is accepted by virtually all Palestinians are are the prisoner leadership inside Israeli uh, prisons. And uh, there's one person who's always mentioned, Marwan Barghouti, uh, who would certainly win uh, an election if you were allowed to run. He's kind of the Nelson Mandela of, uh, of Palestinians. Uh, and so, but other than that, um, as you as you say, Hamas is divided. The people who control events on the ground are not uh, able to push any political uh, solution forward. The PA is broken, corrupt, uh, disrespected, powerless in many ways. It's a tool of the Israeli government. The PLO is a shell of what it was, but I believe that there will be efforts to make the PLO uh, revive it and integrate Hamas, and the PA within a new PLO. Uh, But the real answer to your question is the prisoners, the prisoner organizations, Marwan you If you want to actually talk to representative Palestinians, they're the people to talk to.
0: Okay, in the little bit of time that we have, I do want to ask about uh, your thoughts regarding the proceedings that are taking place at the International Court of Justice. We have several of them. Uh, There's the case being brought by South Africa alleging that Israel is committing genocide against the Palestinians. We've had a preliminary ruling on that. Uh, This week, the ICJ is hearing a separate case about the legal consequences of the Israeli occupation of Palestine. Would these legal proceedings have the effect of forcing Israel to rethink its strategy and genuinely engage?
1: No, I don't think it will have that kind of decisive impact. I don't know when international legal rulings have ever had such an impact. On the other hand, there have been many legal encounters like this in the past, and these are having a bigger impact in Israel than others have had, because they change the discourse internationally. And the fact is that by participating in the uh, Hague uh, genocide accusation trial. Israel has given a certain degree of credibility to them that it is ne- it, it couldn't afford not to. That's an important sign. We don't know. I don't think Israel will probably report in the thirty days, which is coming up very shortly, as it's supposed to, according to the <clears throat> preliminary ruling, and that will open up sanctions that will open up more avenues of criticism and uh, Israelis. Officers in the army population will fear more and more that they will be subject to prosecution as individual war criminals in the future. That's reinforced by American policy, which refers very regularly to the danger of war crimes being committed. So I would not underestimate the effects of these activities, but they'll take a longer time to be implemented. It will put a certain kind of pressure on Israeli politics, that will have implications that we can't completely uh, assess right now, but it won't be getting Netanyahu to change his policies. Now, I will say one last thing. I think it has made one change in Israeli behavior. There were Israeli leaders, including Netanyahu, talking floridly and constantly in genocidal terms about Palestinians. That kind of talk which we heard in the Israeli press pretty regularly in the fall, I'm not seeing so much of. And I think it's because even by the extreme racist ministers in the government, and I think that's because of fear of, what, uh, of how uh, in The Hague and elsewhere that kind of incitement is being used uh, to portray Israel as behaving in a genocidal manner.
0: Professor Lustig, thank you very much for speaking with me and just for fascinating insights into what's happening.
1: Well, thanks for some very good questions.
0: I've been speaking to Dr. Ian Lustig, the Best W. Heyman Chair of the University of Pennsylvania. This has been The Breakfast Grill on BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill, brought to you by Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network.